You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be against you in a court of law. You have the right to an attorney prior to and during questioning. If you can't afford one, the court will appoint one for you. You understand your rights? Warning, each episode of Real Life, Real Crime, the podcast will contain descriptions of acts of violence or of a sexual nature and are for people that are 18 years or older. Heed my warning, people. I do not get the facts of these cases off the internet or from some television show. These facts are I'm retelling were presented to me by the victims of the crime or the perpetrators who committed the crimes. My descriptions of the crime scenes are what I saw with my own two eyes. If you are going to get offended, turn this podcast off now. Thank you. All right, everybody, before we get started, I want to tell you about a podcast that is a friend to real life, real crime, and a guy who's Kind of a little bit legendary to me, anyway, in the true crime podcast world. He's been on several in the past, including some of today's biggest named authors like Jamie Rice from Murderish. But it's Mike Morford, and the show is The Murder in My Family. And he takes a unique perspective on it and talks about the victims of homicides from the family side, what the families go through. It's pretty cool. You got, I mean, I know this because all the homicides I worked, I had to work with the families, right? I get it, and I like what he's done here. So y'all give it a listen. Let me introduce you to Mike Morford, Murder in My Family. This is Mike Morford. You may know me as co-host of the true crime podcast, Criminology. I'd like to invite you to listen to my podcast, The Murder in My Family. In each episode, I discuss a murder case and include an interview with a family member of the victim to discuss the aftermath of the murder. Some of the cases I cover are well-known, and others you probably haven't heard of. And I have several episodes currently available for you to binge on, including episodes about the Delphi murders, the Golden State Killer, and the Colonial Parkway murders, just to name a few. Here's a small sample. Bill Thomas is the brother of Kathy Thomas, and he agreed to talk with me about the murder in his family. Well, Mike, at the risk of sounding like every other proud big brother around the world, Kathy was an amazing person. And one thing I wanted to get across is how important it is that the victims that I'll be talking about in these cases aren't just statistics. You know, they were real people. They're more than just murder victims. For me, knowing that he has a family and that he gets to see his kids every day and that he gets to be there for his kids growing up, like, it's just, it's not fair. He was the most funniest man I've ever met. He was everybody's friend. 
New episodes come out on Saturdays, and you can find The Murder of My Family wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe today so you don't miss an episode. Okay, that was Mike Morford with The Murder in My Family podcast. Y'all go check it out. Give it a listen, like, subscribe, share, and go to social media and let them know that real life, real crime, the podcast sent you. And stay tuned at the end of the show. I have two more podcasts I'm going to introduce you to. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Real Life, Real Crime, the podcast. As always, I'm your host, Woody Overton. And today, we're going to be doing something different. And this will be my first live ever live interview with a good buddy of mine. And we'll get into the details in just a second. So we told y'all in season two, we're going to bring on more law enforcement professionals and people that I worked with, et cetera. And this guy I'm about to introduce you to is the best of the best. His name is Jim Rathman, and I call him Jim the Hitman Rathman, and you'll have to tune in to our patron episode we're going to lock up so you can hear how I got the Hitman from it. But Jim, say hello. Hey, everybody. How we doing? <laughs> All right, y'all. So let me tell you some history on Jim the Hitman Rathman. Jim was on the 2003 LSU National Championship football team, which if you're from South Louisiana, which Jim originally is, and you're from Miami, right? From Fort Lauderdale. Fort Lauderdale. Okay, so how, how did you end up at LSU? Uh, actually, it was uh, coming out of my, my first enlistment in the military and just had a couple of school options. It was considering Ohio State, Florida State, Miami, and LSU, but I really liked Coach Saban quite a bit, and my brother was living there in Baton Rouge, and I wanted to be real close to my brother, so I chose yeah. LSU. Uh, you chose the right team. And I did. Nick Saban is still getting it done, right? Absolutely. Okay, so Jim, after the national championship season, tell me how you came to be with the Livingston Parish Sheriff's Office. Yeah, so I was finishing up with college because I couldn't play football forever. I uh, had a family, so started working. I've always been fascinated with law enforcement. Uh, I actually started out with Baker Police Department. But I was living in Denham Springs, and uh, I actually had met one of our deputies had to come over to my house one time because the keys were locked in my vehicle and needed him to open it up. And anyway, ended up having a good conversation with him and learned a lot about the sheriff at the time, which was Willie Graves. And so I actually called Willie Graves' office and asked him if I could have a meeting with him. And I went in there and literally just asked him for a job, filled out the application. I just got to know him a little bit. And uh, luck would have it, I got hired to go work for the Livingston Sheriff's Office, which was a wonderful decision. Yeah, the see, Jim, neither Jim or I are Livingston Parish residents, born and raised. And I ended up transferring kind of the same way, Jim. There was a, another deputy that was working there, Adam Rice, and he also worked for me in my private investigator business on his days off and he kept saying man you got to go meet willie graves you got to go meet willie graves i'm like dude i'm not going to work at livingston parish at the time it was really rural and all that but to make a long story short i ended up going to meet willie graves just to humor adam and he kept me in there 45 minutes the first day he met me and before i left i knew that's where i wanted to be willie was that good of a guy right absolutely i couldn't agree more 
All right. So Jim came over and was assigned to Uniform Patrol Division. And when you started, I was already in detectives. Is that That is correct. Okay. And then I worked with Jim on on several cases, and we're going to talk about some of those on later dates, including the one where I named him the hitman when I was a detective (laughs) out working a case, and he got a good bad guy for me. But Jim made the special response team, or SRT, which I was a member also of, and they had several requirements to be on the SRT, and one was you had to be in top physical condition, two, you had to be an excellent marksman, and three, you had to have at least two years on-the-road experience. They made an exception for Jim because he was a stud athlete and excellent marksman. Basically, when I first met Jim, and I'm saying probably what Willie Graves, the sheriff, saw him also. I knew he was going to do good things. He's a super intelligent guy and just, you know, good demeanor, just a straight up all around good, great guy. And so they, he got on a special response team and it wasn't long later. He actually was promoted to detective. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to tell you a story of one of the homicides uh, that Jim was lead on that I assisted him in. And Jim, I think we're going to title this one On State Ground. How's that sound? I like the name. <laughs> All right, brother. So tell me what happened. And I'm, you know, I'm going to interrupt you a lot and ask questions, but go ahead. <laughs> yes, it was May 31st of 2007, actually. On this particular day, it was in the middle of the week. And I, it was around lunchtime when the call came in. Originally, I was set up in a trailer park on the opposite side of a old state police barracks, which is the state grounds. And that's that's right outside of Walker, Louisiana, off of 447 South on Buddy Ellis Road, right? That is correct. Okay. So I was following up. There was a robbery, and I had a suspect in mind, and it was actually set up just to kind of do a little bit of surveillance at the time. When the call came in over the radio about a female's body, that was found in a ditch on Buddy Ellis Road. So this body that was discovered was actually discovered by a FedEx driver. And so at that particular time on Buddy Ellis Road, it would stretch for about a mile, I'd say. And uh, it ended up being a dead end. You couldn't take that road any further. So the UPS, or excuse me, the FedEx driver had turned around and started coming back out when he observed a female's body in the ditch. And then, yeah, but let me tell you about Buddy Ellis Road, y'all, at the time. Buddy Ellis Road was south of the city of Walker off of Highway 447 South. And if you took a right on Buddy Ellis, it was just, um, there were some houses on each side of the road, some residences, and then didn't go down that far. I don't know, maybe a mile or something. I yeah, it was know. about a mile. And, and then, there were no more houses. It turned into what the old state police was it a firing range or training center? What was the own training facility? The training facility. So it was state property. And when the residents in, they still had a like a fence, a, mm-hmm. a high fence surrounding the state police training facility and the ditches. Describe that for them, Jim. Cause that. So this particular ditch on the north side of the road was kind of like a canal. Old dried up canal ditch. It it was probably about eh, four or five feet deep. It's deeper than a normal. It's ditch. deeper deeper than a normal ditch. Usually, it's surrounded by some tall grass. Um, in this particular case, that was it. Did have some taller grass than you would normally find. So it's 
things can stay pretty well hidden unless you have a real high vantage point to be able to look down. But a normal car passing by wouldn't be able to see what was in that ditch. Right. But so you said a, a FedEx driver had come down the road and evidently made deliveries. And it was it was really a narrow road, y'all. It's just a narrow blacktop road. And I guess it was easier for the FedEx driver to go to the end where the old state police training facility was and turn around in the parking lot. Yeah, that's correct. The road is a little too narrow to do a three-point turn. So after they made their last delivery, it's just easier to drive the additional couple hundred yards where you have kind of like a cul-de-sac ending, kind of like a circular motion and be able to take that to exit Buddy Ellis Road. And so when he's coming back out, you know, everybody knows the FedEx trucks look like, right? They sit, they sit a little bit higher and he's coming back out and the body would have been on his left-hand side at that time. Correct. So he has the vantage point. What did he say he saw? Do you remember? So he saw the female body laying there. He called 911 to report it. He stayed inside the truck. He never got out of the truck to walk over there. He stayed where he was because he already knew that there was something odd about this. The body appeared to be deceased. I remember him specifically stating that so he didn't want to get near it just in case it was a crime scene he also might have not known that the boogeyman was hiding in that tall grass right that is very much <laughs> good, good point all right so what happened then so he calls 911 and what happens so we actually had two sheriff's deputies that weren't too far away they actually showed up along with one state trooper they went and confirmed that it was a female that she did appear to be deceased they did have an Acadian ambulance show up because they just uh confirm that so usually y'all when they show up if you're a hundred percent sure they're deceased you would just go ahead and rope it off but i think they erred on the side of caution and probably had a kdn running what they call a strip on her put her on her and make sure there were no vital signs right so being that i was on the opposite side of that state police training grounds i heard that call come over and i just said i would go ahead and do the initial look at everything and to see if there was anything suspicious or not, you know, to have the corner come out just so the other detectives wouldn't have to leave the whatever cases they were working on to come over there. I was already there. So I drove to that location. And when I first got out of my vehicle, I remember being approached by the deputies and the state trooper. And their belief was that it was probably somebody overdosed on drugs, may have trying to walk at the time and collapsed there in the ditch and passed away. That was their initial thought. Yeah. And these, we're not talking about rookies, y'all. These guys, the trooper was Ryan Riley, who been a trooper for a long time. But, you know, troopers, and this is before I went to the state police, troopers are experts at tickets, accidents, and DWIs. The road guys don't have that much experience in investigation. And same way with our uniform patrol deputies. They were both senior or correct, they've both been on the job for a while. I think it was Matt Fisk, or who was it? Uh, it was Russell Kiger oh, and yeah. uh, I believe Robbie Ellis. Okay, so Russell Kiger, if you read my book, Jesus Held Me, he, he's the one I talk about, his dear friend of mine that died back in 2009, and he was sharp. So Russell definitely was no dummy. And Robbie Ellis? I believe it was Robbie I, Ellis. I actually got to train both of them, field training officer, them in uniform patrol. So you got there, and what did you see? So right after they told me that information, I walked over there to where the body was. And right when I started looking at it, there was a few things that immediately popped out at me. And this is just coming from some experience of working some cases with 
Woody and some of the other detectives, one of the first things I noticed was that she had lividity on her forearms. Explain what lividity is. Jim. So lividity is where the blood settles. So like gravity, it goes towards the ground. Lividity will settle after a couple of hours and it almost looks like bruising. What happens, right, is, correct me if I'm wrong, when the heart stops beating, gravity takes control and the blood settles to the lowest point of the body or wherever the gravity is the strongest. So you're telling me she had lividity where? And y'all, you can see lividity. It looks like bruising and the skin color actually changes to a darker color. Right. It's like a bluish color. It does look just like bruising. To describe the deceased body at this particular time, and she was actually laying on her back. Wait, 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 let me interrupt you real quick. She, white female, black female, just for our listeners, tell them what you're looking at. So it was a white female at the time. We, I estimated her to be probably in the mid-40s. She did not have any shoes on, no socks. She had a pair of shorts, almost like workout shorts, and a t-shirt, no bra. Okay. And she was laying on her back. Both of her feet were straight out, but her arms and palms of her hands were kind of facing towards the sky. That makes sense. Kind of positioned towards her head. Right. And that's kind of unusual, right? Don't you think? It's unusual, but more unusual to have the lividity to be visible facing the sky. So, Which tells told me right out the gate that when she passed, the position she had to have been moved because she would have been laying face down for the lividity to settle where it, it was. And she would have had to have been in that position for a couple of hours right. for lividity to be able to set in. So that was the first thing that I noticed that was the immediate indicator. The other was she had a the, defensive wound. It's it's an indicator that obviously she had been moved, she'd been moved. after she'd been dead sometime. Absolutely. Right? Boom. Go ahead. And then I noticed also on her right hand, she had a fingernail that was bent back and there was a little bit of blood that had formed underneath her nail as it broke off, which was a defensive wound for probably scratching or trying to get away from her. In your experience, that means, and you've seen it on dead bodies and live bodies, right? In domestic situations or even just a street fight. And when people have that amount of force and are swinging on somebody or whatever, Nails get damaged and stuff like that. So you're saying she had a busted nail. Correct. She had a busted nail on her right hand. And and y'all remember, this is strange, right? This chick's laying in the ditch on her back with her feet and legs straight out, but her hands are up and the palms are up, but the lividity is present. And she's got the busted nail. And then the last thing that I noticed right out the gate, too, was... She had blood that was coming out of the side of her mouth. It was dried. It was dried. If she had died in the position she was currently laying in or the position she was found in, that blood should have went back more towards the ear, should have went from the, the corner of the mouth back towards the ear. And it wasn't that way. It would actually came and then it changed position. So it actually curved. So it went partially down her cheek, but then it actually came down towards her chin. Right. And then so that. It goes along with the lividity that was out of place, the broken nails, and the blood, the dried blood, which means to me, I know it did to you at the time, means that she was dead somewhere else and in a different position long enough, at least for the lividity to set in and that blood to dry on her face. Right. And lividity typically takes two to three hours. Right. Uh, just just as a, a, a rule of thumb, just to kind of estimate how long or... The minimum amount of time. So you're probably looking at two to three hours. All right. So, Jim, 
knows now he has a good old-fashioned Livingston Parish homicide. Possibly. Correct. All right, so what do we do now? So at this point, first thing I did is I went right up to the FedEx driver and asked the driver, did you move this body at all or touch the body in any way? Where I was told from the FedEx driver that he didn't even exit the vehicle, stayed in his seat the entire time. None of the trooper nor the deputies touched the body either. So at this point, I knew that there was definitely foul play. So I called Woody, who was the first person I called to let him know to start making his way over there to me and that we would have a homicide to investigate. And then uh, after I notified Woody, I then called Stan Carpenter and let him know what I found as well. And and Stan was our, y'all, you've heard me talk about him in other episodes. He was our chief of detectives at the time. So I called Stan and just kind of explained what it is that I had observed and the investigation was on. Right. And so by the time you called me and I think I was at the courthouse, which is probably 15 minutes away. And I know by the time I got there, they had state police detectives. Big country was there. Uh, Kevin Duvall is a good friend of mine, y'all. And he actually is a hell of an investigator. And they were looking at it. And it's so funny sometimes between law enforcement agencies, what happens, right? And they, they don't get to work that many homicides that are theirs. When I went over as a criminal investigator with the state police, it was the same way. You always end up assisting other agencies. So it's very, very rare that you have one that you're the first one to respond on it as a state police. And quite frankly, it almost became a little bit of a pissing contest, right? Absolutely, it does. It's a turf war. <laughs> <laughs> they wanted to work it and they wanted to work it bad. I got there. Big country was like, Hey, Hoss, what you doing here? I said, Hey, man, we got a body and they got a 10 seven. He said, Yeah, this is our body. I said, How you, how do you figure that shit? And he said, It's on state grounds. And, and Jim was like, Fuck you. It's in the ditch. <laughs> it's in the ditch. Your, your property line ends at the fence. That's right. That's I mean, we got, we're, you're at least six feet away from state ground. <laughs> so. Absolutely. So. After the contest, so to speak, of who was going to investigate this, Woody and I won, of course. Right. We weren't going to let it happen any other way. Yeah, but they had it, it <laughs> wasn't like we were going to come into blows or anything. We we worked together. We were good friends with these guys, and they knew we were right. So I don't blame them for trying. No, no, everybody loves to work a good homicide, right? Absolutely. All right. So what what would we do then? Jim? So after that, we had the corner comes out we always have a corner that comes but, out yeah, to us and before the corner got there and once the piston contest was over we had russell and robbie ellis oh yeah and robbie cordon off area with the crime scene tape we got the fedex driver out of the way and of course when we do it we always aired on the side of caution not like in the jessica chambers case where they tape off about 10 feet around a vehicle we'd we'd tape out as much tape as they had right as much as possible because we didn't know where where she had come from how big the crime scene was so we blocked off as much as possible i mean there could have been evidence anywhere and that's all part of doing a crime scene and working it properly so and the coroner comes and go ahead john so you know the you got to document the scene right away so while the coroner was on the way and shortly before getting there i took out my camera that i had and i started snapping a lot of pictures the 
viewpoint from where the FedEx driver was to where the body, just everything around the area, because you never know what you might miss or might pick up on just to document the yeah. scene completely. And I always say, even to this day, when I'm working any type of case or whatever, and I'm taking photographs or it could be a Christmas family event. I always say I'm a photographer like a homicide, right? It means I take a hundred different photos from a hundred different angles because you never know. And, and you and I have done both done cases together where we've gone back and looking at the photographs, you see things that you didn't recognize that you saw yeah. or you were seeing at that time with your eyes when you were taking the cameras. So we take. You wouldn't believe the amount of photographs we've taken. Thank God by this time we had digital cameras because back in the day, day, we, we had Polaroids. But go ahead. Ah, so I took a bunch of photos just to document every different angle, everything that we saw, anything that we thought potentially could be evidence, you know, market. And, you know, once the coroner was there and confirmed what we had suspected at this point of the foul play. Woody and I actually huddled up and talked for a minute because given the area, the, the narrow road, it's long. We thought it'd be a good idea to send uniform patrol to knock on every single door that would be able to see that roadway to see if anybody saw anything at all, which in turn ended up being one of the smartest moves because it ended right. up giving us a statement through the 20, 25 statements that we had just from that knocking on doors. There was one that stood out the most and ended up being a major break in the case that we can get to a little bit later on. Yeah. And so y'all, when the coroner comes, Jim's already photographed everything. We do like a grid search looking for any type of evidence or shell casings or whatever, but it didn't appear that the victim had any bullet holes in her or anything like that, that we could tell, but we worked the area, uniform patrols out, getting the statements we're processing, looking for evidence, and I don't think we picked up much of anything. We didn't really. I mean, we, we were looking for anything that could potentially be, but we didn't even find a cigarette butt around the right. the body or any chewed up gum or right. anything that could have any type of DNA on it. There was no knives or and the, weapons. The other thing I remember, too, Jim, you correct me if I'm wrong. You were talking about the high grass. We're not talking like ankle high. We're talking like knee deep, probably. And the grass, anytime you walk through tall grass like that, you're going to disturb it. And there was no disturbance in the no. grass anywhere other than where she straight was. down from, from where she was. That's that right. correct. Yeah. That's correct. And so with the, the coroner basically confirms that they're dead. And as you've heard me say in many past episodes, once we worked it, photographed it, collected or didn't collect evidence, and we got done with the scene, then she would, would have tagged her and bagged her. Correct. She would have been bagged, tagged, and off to the coroner's office for the autopsy. So bagging and tagging, y'all, it's all photographed and they're done. It's a black body bag and they put them in the body bag and it's zipped up and it has a tag, which is actually a lock. Serial number tag. Right. Serial number, lock and tag, and it's locked. It's photographed and that photograph is matched. When you go to the autopsy, it's matched by the coroner. It's rephotographed that it hasn't been broken or tampered with in any way before they begin the autopsy. And that's to preserve the chain of custody on the evidence on the body. So the defense attorney can't come back and say whatever evidence you found on her was planted. You know, that's what a lot of times when you get done and you get to the funeral home, which is where we did the autopsies when it was in the back of the funeral home. And you take the body out, the last thing you do is you shake the 
body bag out and you wouldn't, you wouldn't believe the shit that would come off a body inside <laughs> of the body bag. So, but, um, that's all, always an important process. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. So the coroner then collected up the body. Uh, we photographed the tag on there and off to the coroner's office. The body went, the autopsy was going to take place the following morning. So knowing that the news media was starting to show up, we're going to, they want to put it on the news. What's going on? And we, knew, and we we didn't have any identification. She had nothing on her, right? We didn't. She didn't have any. Again, she had no shoes, no socks. She had on a pair of, of what I refer to as gym shorts uh, and a T-shirt, no bra. That was it. There was no purse. There was no wallet. There was no identification. It is a complete Jane Doe. We have right. no idea who she is, and we don't even recognize her for being in the area right. um, from somebody that we've had previous contact with. She wasn't a frequent flyer of ours. Not at all. That, I mean, not, not your local dopehead that we arrested all the time or, you know, at least I hadn't, I hadn't seen her. I had never seen her either. The others that and were the involved. Uniform, and the uniform guys hadn't seen didn't. her. And they, they, if she was a prostitute or whatever, they would have known, you know, if she was in that area prostitute and she was a regular but she was a straight up jane doe so one of the things that we did have which i took a picture of was actually on her arm she had a tattoo that's right i remember that and so i had taken a picture of the tattoo and when we got back to the detective's office uh you know you want to start searching wherever you can for information and the first thing to do is possibly go through missing persons reports so with the news that particular night uh stan carpenter we gave him a copy of that photo with the tattoo, and they did their little press release with the media that a body was found. It is being treated as a homicide until ruled otherwise, and then they gave the media a copy of the tattoo in hopes that somebody would recognize it right? and call into the sheriff's office. They didn't show her face or anything like that, but the tattoo was, uh, it was a distinct tattoo, and we figured somebody and jim was right on that they're figuring that somebody would recognize it, it wasn't like a, a heart with mom through it or whatever I, uh it was was it a hummingbird or something it was some sort of bird with some yeah. initials on it right okay that's right with initials go ahead so at that point we were hoping for some calls to come in possibly some leads and there were plenty of calls that came in i, I want to say because i know woody and i worked that entire evening neither one of us went home i went from the office to the autopsy the next morning. Yeah, I can't tell you how many times we and slept on our desk, right? It, for oh, 20 golly. minutes here, 20 minutes just, here. Not that, not just on this case, on so many cases. I don't think the general public really gets that. No, because uh, the calls just come around. Uh, they, they just keep coming in. And, and I want to say you and I tracked down probably 40 or 50 calls that came into the sheriff's office right. about either potential missing person or who they think it might be. And we follow up on every single one of those. Right. And, and, you know, as the news plays on its continuous loop every 30 minutes throughout the night, these calls were coming in at 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. Right. So we followed up on every single one. Unfortunately, not one of them had to do with who our victim was. Not one. We were able to rule out all of those. Right. So the next morning, uh, I was there at the coroner's office, uh, you know, take photos of the seal to ensure that it hadn't been tampered with. Again, that's like Woody said, it has to do with chain of custody. So it took pictures of the seal opening up the bag, 
And then they went through the autopsy process from there to determine the cause of death. Which was? Death by strangulation. Right. The, the, the hyoid bone broken in the neck, correct? Correct. So, y'all, and that the blood that was dried on the side of the mouth, we've seen that so many times. We, we could probably pretty much have told you. Also, she had some petechia hemorrhaging correct. in the eyes. So, the autopsy process starts and they cut the clothes off, et cetera. And, and as soon as it, the coroner opened her eyes, Jim knew what it was. But I mean, the coroner knew, but they still have to work through the full process to make sure there's no other specific injuries, et cetera. I mean, of course, like they would photograph the defensive wounds on her nails and stuff like that. Yeah. You know, it, it's interesting when you do an autopsy for a homicide opposed to like an autopsy or just an unusual death that wasn't a homicide just the way that they go about it but i will say that our coroner's office the state police crime lab were absolutely phenomenal in the process that they took for this i mean you're talking about bags over hands to clipping of fingernails yeah let's let's talk about that before they put her in the body bag they bagged her hands with paper bags and that is in case uh, any hairs or DNA evidence or whatever w- wouldn't get lost in during the transport of the body. And they actually tape the bag closed around the wrist. Right. That way, if anything were to fall off, it's still in the, it's bag. Still in the bag. Yeah. And then that's a really good detail, John. I mean, sometimes I forget to mention things like that. But the... And I've said it once, and I'll say it a thousand times, the autopsy process is the most invasive thing ever. You know, I don't mind the dead bodies and the smells and everything else, but just I just don't want to do an autopsy on me. <laughs> it's just so, I mean, but it's, it has to be done. I mean, it's not like they're, you know, doing it for fun, right? But the, the whole process of the basically peeling off the, you know, the scalp of the, the skull and laying the head scalp over the face and then the bone saw and patron remember y'all probably heard the, the episode of pants on the ground and then a couple other ones where i've talked about the autopsies and they you get that reciprocating bone saw and is there anything quite like the sound of that and the smell of that the smells don't bother me but that bone saw when they go around the skull and the circular motion and then they have to pop it open with like a mini screwdriver or chisel thing, a little hammer, and they the top of the skull off, and then you, you got the bone dust in the air. I just, I, didn't, I can never forget about those. They're just the whole damn thing. is It's a necessary process, but I don't want it. They kill me, yeah, y'all can just go ahead and skip over it. <laughs> they definitely don't miss an inch. Yeah, that's, that's right. Sure. Take everything out and weigh it, every organ, every, I mean, it's crazy. And in some cases, some corners will even Smell try it. to guess the content yes, of what yeah, you ate last. <laughs> I think he did it on every single one of them. And one of the things he would do was cut out the, the stomach and cut it open into, and drain it into a bowl, and he would sniff it. He would wave his hand <laughs> over and sniff it to try to figure out what the last thing the victim ate was. And the first time he ever did that to me, it, it had us. I, I was a rook. I didn't know. And, and it, he was going to do it. And he did it. And it was like, here, smell this. And I was like, but it kind of smelled sweet. And he said, what is that? And I said, I don't know. It kind of smells sweet. It was barbecue sauce. The victim <laughs> had been eating barbecue the day before. Yeah, that's some pretty sick shit, but. That, I mean, it's, it's part of the process. It's unusual, but it's part of the process. <laughs> the 
One of the joys of the job. Oh. So where do we go from here? So, you, you did the autopsy. I think I was probably grabbing 20 winks or following up on a call or something. And, uh, you know, the autopsy all takes hours. And uh, meanwhile, we're still getting more calls, et cetera. It was. So you, you were following up on any additional leads that were coming in while I was doing the, uh, the autopsy. But the, like I said, the process is very meticulous. Um, you know, they, when they take the bags off and they remove it and they, they clip and collect the fingernails, you know, they actually kind of comb over the body, so to speak. They'll even, That's right. even try to warm the body up to lift the fingerprint if possible. That's right. Uh, so, you know, at this particular time, I remember them using a hairdryer to warm up a certain area and then using kind of like in science class, you have those glass slides, slides yeah. and they would use that in, not one inch of that body was missed yeah. every single inch. And so you're talking hundreds upon hundreds of slides that they would use right. and then put under light to see if there was any fingerprints. Yeah. And with the slides do y'all by, by the heating it up, when you leave the fingerprints, you're leaving oils from your skin on there. And they have been successful in some cases. Absolutely. We did. Uh, yeah. I, you just, I totally forgot about that. So they, they literally would heat it up with a hairdryer as they go and work the whole body, just hoping to get lucky for even a partial fingerprint of, of who killed her. And they also will take her fingerprint as well in the same manner. Uh, that way we can get an identification on the deceased. Um, it's going to take some time, but they were able to lift some successful fingerprints of hers. Unfortunately, the slides did not work over her body to find a fingerprint right. of someone. I said they were able to get her fingerprints, which that was passed off in order, you know, just had to wait and, on that. And when they do back. that, y'all, they actually take her hand and just like if you were in booked in an old time jail. Now in jails, when you get booked, it's a, on an electronic machine, right? It's a, it's on a screen. They roll your hand and get your prints and you have to roll it to get the full range of the print because your fingers curve. But in, in an autopsy, they did it old school on the fingerprint cards. I mean, they literally rolled the ink on her finger and it took each finger and rolled it and then, and then would take that and enter it into the NCIC computer looking for a match. Correct. So they went through the entire autopsy. We knew the cause of death now. And we have fingerprints on her, but we still don't know who she is, and that's going to take some time. So I left the autopsy to go back to the detective's office to uh, get with Woody and start going over, you know, having a, a good conversation, trying to see whatever information I have and what he has and just kind of bounce ideas to, you know, have some sort of baseline to work off of. Yeah, definitely. And um, that's where we usually came up with our best stuff, right? And then our private jam sessions after you've been <laughs> up for 30 plus hours and whatever. And, you know, it's just, I know all you true crime fans out there, you watch the shows like 48, not 40, it's the first 48, right? That's Correct. as close as you can get to an active homicide investigation and, and it is time is of the essence because you lose every second that goes by, you lose or you have the potential to lose evidence, witness statements, et cetera. Yeah. You know, you get that adrenaline spike when right. you're, when you're working a homicide. Oh, it's and, a rush. And it's definitely a rush. And so everything that comes in might be that, that one bit of information that cracks the case wide open. So you're constantly searching for that, that one little piece, that one little slither of evidence that you need. 
in order to open it wide up. And that's what we were definitely searching for at that time. Um, I remember when Woody and I were discussing the case at this point, I got a phone call, if you remember this, from yeah, the I FBI. Did. Yeah. And the FBI went on to tell Woody and I that more than likely our deceased was probably a drifter that came with a uh, with a truck driver, an 18-wheeler, yep. that, you know, come in and out of Louisiana all the time and probably just dumped her body off and left. Yeah. And we didn't buy that very much because we already said if a FedEx truck is having trouble doing a three-point turn exactly. and has to go to the end, I don't see an 18-wheeler being right. able to do it. You I know they're skilled. You couldn't turn a Crown Vic around on that, right? No. Uh, without having to pull in somebody's driveway. Correct. In the ditches. Being deep. Now, look, I was world famous for getting my shit stuck and, and uh, my crown <laughs> do remember that? back and out. I mean, and so I remember that Buddy Ellis read at that time. And so you're right that the, man, we were like, thanks, but no thanks on that one, right? But we kept it open and it would have fit in with the idea that nobody knew her or we didn't, hadn't arrested her frequently, but. There's no fucking way they got an 18 wheeler no. down there and put that body in there, no. especially without the the neighbors on the road seeing it. Yeah, so you know it was well, thanks, but no thanks. Uh, good theory, not possible in this right. particular situation. So uh, again, the news media was contacting the sheriff's office wanting to get an update, um, and this time we knew we knew the cause of death. We can confirm that it's definitely a homicide. But what we don't want to do is release to the media what the actual cause of death is. Right. Keep because your cards you, close to you. You want to keep that close. Right. The only person who's going to be able to describe that to us would it be the killer. Is the killer. That's right. So we put it on the news about, you know, the tattoo photo once again. We even confirmed that it was a homicide. Additional leads would come in. They were even coming in from Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got a few leads that came in from Texas. Right. I believe one from Georgia. Yeah. That word was starting to spread, but nothing would lead back to our victim. Right. But um, every lead has to be followed up on. And you wouldn't believe the crazy fuckers that call in and then, you know, they want to get somebody, their ex-girlfriend or whatever in trouble. But still, it had to be looked at. And, of course, we didn't know who she was. So about 36 hours into this investigation. The only thing that we could wait on was the identification from her and see if we could work from that angle. So I remember Woody and I did get a little bit of rest that particular night just because we had followed up on everything that we could. And, and we did take some calls throughout that night when there was a it was another missing person lead that would come in. But it was the next morning. So then at this point, it would have been June 2nd, right. I believe. Um, I had gotten a call from the FBI, I believe it was that had identified our victim. Right. And this call came in approximately 8, 8.15 in the morning and gave us the name of Carol Ann Bailey. That's right. And they get it, went ahead and gave us her date of birth. So as soon as I had that information, I finally had a name for the victim. Carol Ann Bailey. That's right. And then, which is the first thing you do when they get her name in? Run her in the system. That's right. So, and, and tell them what she found. So we ran her in what we call the NCIC, which is a national criminal database, basically. And, and, and anybody that's been arrested for anything, the fingerprints, their arrest history, 
goes into that database and even driver's license and stuff like that. But go ahead, Joe. So she ended up, the NCIC came back and there was a hit that she was actually on probation out of Beaumont, Texas. Beaumont. And y'all, for our listeners across the world, Beaumont is B-E-A-U-M-O-N-T, Texas. And it's not that far across the Louisiana line. It's on the way to Houston. Right. You got to pass it to get to Houston. So it's actually a lot of drug trafficking goes through there. Yeah, that's Interstate 10 is the, you know, runs coast to coast pretty much. Of course, coming up from all the uh, ports of entry in Mexico, that's where a lot of the smuggling comes up and hits 10. And they can pretty much go into any city in the eastern seaboard off of interstates that run north off Interstate 10. So with the NCIC hit that came back and had to, uh, we got that probation violation or the probation out of uh, Beaumont, Texas. We obviously called Beaumont PD. Right. Um, we tried to get in contact with the probation office. We ended up speaking with one of their detectives out in Beaumont PD that day. So what they had to do was go find some old files because she had been on probation years before and their stuff gets filed every so often. So they right. had to actually go to their filing room, then pull out that file number and start looking through the paperwork. So it's, it's a process. Yeah. Um, and, and it's, and it's, you know, law enforcement's a brotherhood, but guess what? It's not their case, right? And they've got a bunch, a bunch of active cases they're working. So, I mean, it's not, <laughs> it's not like they threw their donuts on the floor and ran out with their ass <laughs> on fire to, to help us out. But, but although they did, they I mean, were very they helpful. They were very helpful, great guys. Of course, we've all been in that same situation. They were, they were very helpful, and uh, we just had to be patient to wait for the information to come back. Um, we And so throughout that day, I, I just kept checking my phone, checking right. emails, just waiting, like something come in. And they reached out, and they had given us a name of an ex-boyfriend that she had on an old booking form uh, when she was booked into jail a few years prior to that. She had left the name of her boyfriend there in Beaumont, Texas. So I had described to the detectives with Beaumont PD uh, what it was that we were looking for, defensive wound. Um, so they were going to drive by the residence of this particular individual and see, one, if the vehicle that we were going to be looking for from the one statement that we got. Yeah, let's so, t- t- back up and tell them about that statement. So. To tell you about that, when we had Uniform Patrol go to each house that was visible to where you could see the body, or the location of the body anyway, we got one statement. And this particular lady typically worked an afternoon into the early evening hours. But on that particular day, May 31st, she actually was able to pick up an additional shift for work. So she didn't get home till about 2 o'clock in the morning is what right. she told us. And when she got home, she actually had to take her dog out. So she was standing in the front of her yard, letting her dog go to the bathroom. And she noticed a small red truck, approximately in the area of where our body ended up being found. Right. And you remember, there's nothing past where the body was, except for the closed down state police training center. So and, this and, and buddy else's straight shot road. Y'all, it's no turns. She, I mean, you look left, right. She could see as far as, I mean, Right. She could see towards the end of the road. So she said that the whole time while she had her dog out there, that vehicle was parked and she could see somebody standing in that ditch area. 
At the time, she wasn't putting two and two together what it could possibly be. Maybe thought somebody was going to the bathroom. The gentleman then got back into the truck, drove to the end of that road, the same path that the FedEx driver took to turn back around to exit Buddy Ellis Road out to 447, also right. known as Walker South Road. Right. And let me tell you this geographically, Buddy Ellis is only a couple miles south of Interstate 12. So when Jim had the hit and the um, ex-boyfriend listed on the book of shooting, what have you, in Beaumont, we were thinking, okay, it's not unreasonable to think that somebody could have got off 12 and went to the, down to the first street that was secluded enough to go throw a body out. Exactly. And Buddy Ellis Road would be that kind of road. That's right. So uh, after that vehicle had left, she didn't see it again. She didn't obviously didn't walk over to examine what, what the person may have been doing. She went right. back inside and went to sleep. And she hadn't seen the vehicle before. Either. And she had and not seen the vehicle before. And it, it was, was unusual. It was. I mean, and all the neighbors on that road knew each other. So that statement in itself stood out to us quite a bit because it just fit what was going on. So we told Beaumont PD the description of that vehicle. So they then went and drove out to that residence in Beaumont. They made contact, identified the ex-boyfriend listed. That ex-boyfriend did not have a vehicle fitting that description. Had an alibi. He actually had an alibi. He was at work. It was confirmed he was at work. He did not have any defensive wounds on him or where he would have been scratched. That's right. So he was ruled out. So again, we're back to back, back to the drawing board back again. To the drawing Come up board. with another idea. So, so hey, you know what? I got to now. I'm thinking about it, and you're telling me shit. Beaumont PD really did a, a hell of a lot for us. They did. Otherwise, we'd have had to drive us like probably three, three and a half hours from Livingston Parish to Beaumont. And believe me, we would have been over there doing it ourselves. But we were still following <laughs> other leads working on things and so hey Beaumont I actually asked Stan that particular evening so it was now you're talking 4 p.m. 4 30 p.m. at this point and I asked Stan I said Stan I got to go to Beaumont yeah Woody and I got to go to Beaumont we got to go right now to follow up on the right listed boyfriend on or ex-boyfriend I guess on the on the booking sheet and Stan we just knew that was gonna be the was there hasn't been much sleep it's a lot See if Beaumont PD will yeah, will do it I for us. Stan's invitation. Oh, also, <laughs> let, 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 let Beaumont PD do that. Uh, you boys, you boys, stay here in case something breaks off here. So Beaumont PD ended up. Uh, they said they had some additional files they wanted to look through. So at that point, Stan was trying to tell Woody and I to to go back home, and um, I had a few things I wanted to follow up on, and just a couple, you know, kind of go through some of the missing persons list. One more time, just to see if there's anything that Gotta keep looking. potentially missed. I wanted to look through that list one more time. So Woody left, went back home, I guess, to eat some dinner Shit. before I pulled him back out once again. Yeah. But uh, ended up getting a call from Beaumont PD, their detectives, and they actually found an uh, old booking sheet prior to the one that had the ex-boyfriend on it. They found that while digging through some files, and it actually listed a next of kin which was Carol Ann Bailey's mother, who lived in Baton Rouge. That's right. Uh, right off of 
Sherwood Forest Boulevard. Off of Sherwood uh, Forest, uh, Forest Boulevard. Boulevard, mm-hmm. the province, I believe, and, and, uh, which is one street off of Sherwood, which is also right there off the interstate, uh, Interstate 12, and is only maybe five, ten, maybe 10 or 15 miles from the exit right. off of 446 right. south to Buddy Ellis. So I called Woody and let him know that, hey, I've, I've got a name here for a next of kin with an address, which is going to be her mother. Yeah. And we need to go over there. So I gave Woody the address, and he actually drove over there and met me there and for us to do the death notification. Yeah, and those are always so much fun. With that, Jim, we are going to wrap up episode one of on state ground and y'all tune in next week because this is a good one and really really great detective work and we're gonna let you know what happens but before we close i want to give you some more history on jim okay so i went to the state police in 2007 as a criminal investigator and, and when did you go back in, in the military Right at the end of 2007, 2008. Right, so right around the same college. time. So, and, and Jim's not going to tell you this because he's that kind of guy. So, Jim finished up his college, graduated, and then he went and enlisted as an officer. Or, Correct. Yeah, um, was an officer with the 82nd Airborne. 82nd Airborne and went in and we kept in contact, and I know you had a very serious injury, right? Didn't you, a knee? I did have a knee injury at one time, yeah. but I still that was during the training. Yeah, but recovered from that quit. and continued to go right, and 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 continue to go on. And then I'm not I'm going to go on too much because I know Jim had some tough times, but he ended up making the rank of captain and was fucking true american hero and, and and you know i love you brother and i got mad respect for you i always have and Appreciate you that. um won the bronze star bronze star for combat actions combat actions and and where where was it uh that was right outside of uh kandahar afghanistan so i know jim lost his one, one of his best friends over there and we don't have to talk about that jim or anything but i just want y'all to know you're listening to the voice of not only I consider my lifelong friend, and I can always tell you this, and you ask anybody that knows me, I've always said this, a true friend is someone that you can be apart from for years and years and years, and you get back together, and it's like you never missed a beat. And that's Absolutely. Way, that's the way Jim and I have always been, and we always will be. So you listen to the voice of a true American hero, and I know knew this dude was going to do great things, and he did. And you know, Jim, people probably don't say it enough, but thanks for everything that you've done. And y'all, after he got out of the army, Jim went to into the United States Secret Service. But we'll talk about that next week. I really appreciate you, dude, and you Thank know that. And, appreciate uh, you too, brother. It's, it's, this is the first time we've been face to face in. Years. Shit, probably 10 years. 10 years. So. All right, so tune in next week for Jim. Give him the name. The conclusion of State Grounds. On State Grounds. All right, thank y'all. I mean, I love and appreciate each and every one of you. And I'm Woody Overton, your host of Real Life, Real Crime, the podcast with Jim, the hit man, Raph man. <laughs> and 
we will catch you next week. But until then or ever, don't let me catch you down on murder by you. Peace. All right. Now I want to take a second and introduce you to two more podcasts that are friends of real life, real crime. And the first one is men's Rhea. Let me introduce you to them now. Mens rea is the legal principle of criminal intent. It means literally the guilty mind. Join me, Sinead, every fortnight to discuss Ireland and the UK's most heinous crimes and the court cases that followed. Do you want to know more about a kink killing in Dublin in 2012? Or serial killers in Scotland? Whatever your guilty pleasure, you'll find it and all the details with me. Find Mens Rea wherever you get your podcasts. All right, y'all. It's Mens Rea. Y'all go check them out. Like them. Subscribe. Let them know that real life, real crime, the podcast sent you. And now let me introduce you to the true crime enthusiast. Hello, all. My name's Paul, and I'm the creator and host of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, a show that looks at and recounts a variety of cases from the shores of the UK. Some are solved, some are unsolved, but they always tend to be the more obscure and unfamiliar. On the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, you'll find tales ranging from teenage vampires to sex-crazed killer farmers, from exorcisms gone wrong in the most extreme manner to the most horrific mask-wearing maniacs that you can imagine. Each tale is as true as the sky is blue, and the UK claims the lot. So if you're intrigued, then why not join me each week as I trawl through the archives for these and much more. You can find me on iTunes, Spotify, and pretty much wherever you grab your shows from. So I hope you can join me and become enthusiastic about the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. All right, and there you have the True Crime Enthusiast, Paul. Y'all go and give a like and a listen and let them know that Real Life, Real Crime, the podcast sent you. Okay, I just want to take a minute do my weekly shout outs to all our fans. I love and appreciate each and every one of you. You're awesome. Our numbers are growing, y'all. Y'all know about the podcast awards. You can go vote for us at podcastawards.com under podcasts of the year, society and culture and drama and storytelling. We really would appreciate if you go give us a vote. And if you do it and you're so inclined screenshot it and post it to the crew, right? So in y'all, the crew passed over 1,500 members this week as well on its way to 1,600. And that's our private Facebook page. You hear me talk about it every week. If you're not a member, you should join. Send us requests and the dream team will get you approved. And it's awesome. And of course, our YouTube's growing, our Instagram's growing, Twitter. And we have the regular real life, real crime open page on Facebook. Facebook and then our Lanyap group is growing, y'all. So go check them out. But let me tell you about a couple of patron members that signed up this week and I really appreciate them. It means a lot. It helps us out a lot, y'all. And we thank you for doing it, taking the time to commit and subscribe to us through Patron. And I want to tell you about Tiffany Leggett. 
and Tiffany, I love you and I appreciate you. And I thank you for taking the time to do it and really means a lot. And I appreciate you very, very, very much. And Robert Malin. Now, Robert is a really cool guy. We've been talking a little bit back and forth and he's had some good words of advice for me. And Robert, I really appreciate you signing up for Patreon and what you've done in our communications. And I thank you for it, brother. And thank you once again for supporting us. It goes a long ways. So, and I appreciate you. And Raven Moran. And Raven, we really do appreciate you. And thank you for signing up and supporting us. It means a lot. It goes a long way. And, it, and it's awesome. It really, really does help. And Miss Jessica Kennedy. Jessica, thank you. I appreciate you. And I appreciate your support through Patreon. It means a lot. And next week, y'all, I'm going to go back into the list and, and read out patrons. We have a lot of patrons now, and we really appreciate it. The patron support just simply helps us defray some of our costs in creating these episodes, and we appreciate it. And listen, if you can't support us through Patreon, it's okay. We love you, appreciate you, and y'all are doing more than I can ask you to anyway by liking and sharing and subscribing. And hey, let's leave some reviews on iTunes. And if you haven't already, I know we got a lot, a lot of fans and I think we're like less than 300 reviews on Apple. So if y'all could leave us a review, I'd appreciate that. And I appreciate all y'all and love it. And everything we're doing, they had another list came out, the top true crime podcast of 2019. And we made that list. How crazy is that? Five months in. So it's because of y'all. And I love you. And I appreciate you. And I'm always going to show my love to our fans and listeners. That's it. That's how I roll. So appreciate you. Love you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Like, share, subscribe, and don't let me catch you down on murder by you. Peace. to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be against you in a court of law. You have a right to an attorney prior to and during questioning. If you can't afford one, the court will appoint one for you. You understand your rights?